Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Dustin McGowan, who is co-hosting season two with me. Dustin and I will discuss an interview that I recorded with Dr. Christina Edmondson about her book, Faithful Anti-Racism. First, let's listen to a clip about the book. Dr. Christina Edmondson, we're in a period of great confusion, tension, and conflict in regard to racial justice. Some Christians believe that emphasizing racial justice is misguided, unbiblical, and problematic. Others believe it is long overdue, biblical, and essential. I'm Chad Brennan. Over the last 25 years, the Lord has taken me on a journey from passive indifference and skepticism on the topic of racial justice to it becoming a strong passion and the primary focus of my ministry and research. We've both enjoyed reading many excellent books on the topic of racial justice, but we don't know of any book that is based on a combination of biblical principles, national research, interviews with leading experts, and experience working with Christians across the country. Faithful anti-racism is about action. It provides biblical, practical action, steps for Christians, regardless if they are new to the topic or a seasoned veteran. Dr. Christina Edmondson holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, a master's degree in family therapy from the University of Rochester, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. Dr. Edmondson frequently consults with and serves churches, universities, and other organizations seeking assistance with leadership development, anti-racism, and mental health issues. She is a co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, co-author of Faithful Anti-Racism and Truth's Table. We ask for your patience with the audio quality of the interview, which was on Zoom in 2022. Dr. Edmondson, thank you for being with us today. First, can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Christina Edmondson. <laughs> I was born and raised in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, my um, That's where my parents still live. I'm grateful to very much have my parents active and kicking in my life. <laughs> um, and a, a significant amount of my family still lives in Baltimore City. Um, and I think growing up in Baltimore and growing up connected to a uh, historic uh, Black church in that city uh, are pretty pretty um, impactful, pretty formative for me. Uh, my sense of uh, communal calling that I don't just belong to myself, um, that I'm connected to a people and to purposes. Um, a sense of, in terms of my Christian convictions, that um, works its way out in really tangible and practical ways. I, I think how the way the language I would use today, um, as a forty-somethinger, would be something like Christianity is is necessarily political, um, and so I have a, I, um, and that doesn't make it dirty or muddy. <laughs> that actually, <laughs> that means that we're heavenly minded in order to be earthly good, um, and so I think the the roots of that. Uh, without necessarily being given that direct language that I use, come from um, my early childhood development within my family and within the church community that discipled me and embraced me. And so that, that's my earliest backstory. I'm also a product of um, both a couple of historically Black colleges and universities, as well as a large predominantly white research institution. Um, 
And so having worked, having, having studied, studied in some different spaces, but also worked in some different types of institutions from community colleges to private Christian institutions to HBCUs um, to a research institution, I, I, um, I really have a strong sense of the importance of education but also to see it properly, that, that knowledge is not enough, that we need to have wisdom. Um, and though that's naturally the same thing, uh, wisdom is about our application of knowledge um, and, and an awareness of how limited we are in our knowledge as well. Um, and so that's a little bit about me and kind of the things that, uh, where I come from and, and, my, and my roots, so to speak. Yeah, thank you for that introduction, Dr. Evanson, and for sharing some of your story with us. And I want to say you've been an important part of my story, too. I've learned so much from you, from both your podcast and your book. So thank you for who you are and, and what you do. You've been a blessing to me and, and to my family. Oh, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So speaking of your book, uh, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, what did you learn from writing the book that you think is important for people to know about anti-racism? For sure. So I, I got the privilege of writing this book with my co-author, Chad Brennan. Shout, shout out to Chad, because he, he will listen to this. I'll make, I'll make sure I send it his way. Uh, sometimes we do interviews together and sometimes we, we go off on our own. And so, um, but we, we make it a point to make sure we mention the, the hard work and prayers of the other person. So uh, I'll give you a, a little bit of backstory. I think it'll help you to make sense out of the book and why, why we decided to, to, uh, to present this offering, so to speak. Um, some years back, this is like pre-COVID days. <laughs> So it feels like it feels like a decade ago, but it was not a decade, but it was pre-COVID. Uh, Chad and I, we did not know each other, but we were a part of a group of people that were invited to an event um, uh, that was uh, in Seattle, I believe, remembering correctly. And uh, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil was uh, the the person who you know convened this time together, and it wasn't a huge a huge crowd of people, but um, I remember um, there being maybe roughly twenty ish, I think, of us, and people knew each other's work or knew each other's names in some way, shape, or form. Um, uh, but some people knew each other really well, and, and some people were just starting to get to know each other. And it was an opportunity, really, for like a kind of a spiritual respite for people who are Christians who. Um, do the work or hope to do the work of racial justice. And it was at that place that I got to hang out with some, some researchers like Chad Brennan and Michael Emerson <laughs> and others. And we began to brainstorm and just, just talk about what it means to be in higher ed or to um, approach this particular topic, not first and foremost as a preacher, um, although we are preachy, I'm sure, <laughs> but to approach it, bringing to bear kind of um, our, our social science background and interests, right? And mine, um, largely as a psychologist, but has a sociology um, background as well. And uh, and so, and from there, conversations kind of flowed. And I had some 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 buddies that were there, actually two two pastors in Chicago, and you're probably familiar with their work. One was Daniel Hill. Um, and the other was Pastor David Swanson. And I remember both of them saying like, Christina, where's your book? Like, you should write a book. <laughs> I was like, yeah, y'all should give me a sabbatical. <laughs> um, but it was a very, very, very kind. I think they were saying like, we want to, we would, we would read what you, what you share. And, and then uh, a matter of months later, um, that team reached out to me, Chad specifically, and, and 
uh, initially would ask me uh, questions about the research project that they had underway and my thoughts about the target audience, the framing of questions, so kind of methodolo methodological kind of stuff. Um, and eventually, uh, we knew that from this large research project uh, of both quantitative and qualitative research, there was going to be this huge uh, body of material produced, and what were we going to do with it? And um, we knew that uh, Glenn Bracey has a book that he he's working on. Michael Emerson has a book that he's working on. A lot of those are very strong kind of academic audience books, um, really important for the church. But I would say that the first audience is, is uh, academicians. And Chad reached out to me about writing a book where we knew the audience would be uh, Christians, you know, church going Christian types who say they believe the Bible, <laughs> like that, that kind of group of people. And, um, and that, was, that was interesting to me. And, um, and particularly my psychologist had on uh, to think about how to talk to that population, um, but to bring to bear in relevant and faithful ways what we see uh, in, in, in the social science work, right, around, around religion and racism. And so we got to working on it. And um, we didn't know COVID was going to happen, but we kept working. And, uh, and then we, and we produced uh, this book, which I hope has been helpful to people that have been able to read it. Well, I'm so happy that you did write the book. Uh, I so enjoyed it and especially have, have appreciated really everything I've read by some of the folks that you mentioned, uh, Michael Emerson, Corey Little Edwards, who I think both wrote uh, forwards to your book. Um, Absolutely. Man, that's, yeah, that's incredible. It's like, if you can get those two folks to forward for your book, it's like, man, you know, you know some good folks. <laughs> Uh, well, well, I, well, I, well, this is what I realized. Even if people didn't like the part that Chad and I created, they would at least, you know, give honor where honor is due to uh, Dr. Corey Edwards Little and to uh, Michael Emerson. And so, and they had been people who I would think from an academic standpoint were, you know, sociologist heroes of mine. And so uh, it's really cool to, um, to think about their, their contribution. And, and just a reminder that um, that people are, are serving, the, are doing the work of the kingdom from all kinds of locations. And so some of us are in higher education or business or wherever we might be. Um, we don't necessarily all kind of live at the pulpit uh, to do that work. Yeah, well, I will say I did purchase the book before I, know, I knew who wrote the forward, but afterwards, afterwards <laughs> I, was, I was happy to see that. There you so, go. <laughs> uh, but Dr. Emerson, speaking of the research, to me, one of the most important findings from the research that you base the book on is that many people, especially white Christians, have misunderstood the problem of racism. Therefore, we've made it worse, not better. And in chapter one, you wrote, uh, quote, there was a large percentage of Christians in all racial groups who provided non-structural explanations or denied the existence of racial disparities. That is a major barrier to Christians helping to address racial injustice. If we do not understand the problem, it is much more likely that we will contribute to perpetuate it rather than helping to address it. Um, to me, that may have been the most important paragraph of the book. So can you comment on that? Oh, sure, sure. And you know, this appeals to the work certainly of Michael Emerson and others, right? Who um, so when we are when we are trying to make sense out of the world around us, we employ different tools to make that happen, right? And so uh, most people would acknowledge to some extent that there there have been different experiences, and there are um, 
different lived realities for people across racial lines. Now, now there are some people who would say like, no, there isn't. <laughs> we, we, we see some of that in the data too. But I would say that many people might say, okay, well, you know, that seems to be a black neighborhood over there in comparison to what they might think of as a white neighborhood over here, right? And so there's a sense in which we're trying to make sense out of, you know, why the schools or why the policing dynamic or why um, the the amenities or uh, what what is afforded to that community, right? Like where do we see where do we see water crises happening, right? Flint, Michigan, and in Jackson, Mississippi, there's there's some commonalities between those cities, for example, right? The high population of African American people that are there, um, and so different people people try to make sense out of that, right? And so some people, and we associate this with from the research, from what we've seen, um, white people who identify as Christian are more likely to make sense out of those disparities um, by, by providing an explanation that is much more characterologically based than structurally based. And so, you know, why is there economic disparity uh, between such, such disparity between whites and blacks, for example? or whites and indigenous people in the United States, for example. What, 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 how do we make sense out of that? It is more likely for white Christians to cite the personal or, or false notions of personal work ethic, um, family structure, value systems, before actually talking about things like, I don't know, the GI Bill. <laughs> Or, uh, or redlining in neighborhoods that impact property wealth, you know, uh, yeah, wealth on property, and um, and and so many hundreds of years of of reasoning, structural reasoning, uh, for why there is the economic disparity that we see today. So let me give you this short story, and I'll stop talking. Um, a, a couple of years back, I was. Um, I was asked to speak uh, at a, uh, a Christian, private Christian uh, university in Iowa. It was my first trip to Iowa. And uh, <laughs> although I know there are black people in Iowa, this, this black person had, had not been to Iowa. <laughs> and, um, and so I was invited to, uh, to Iowa to speak at this university. And while I was there, I just loved to learn about like, you know, locations and cities where I find myself. And really it's racial story. Uh, it's important to me while I'm there. And one of the things I started to look at was some, um, some, Kind of old uh, newspaper clippings that were um, kind of in, kind of an electronic form, and it talked about the ways in which um, in this part of Iowa, which, which had all of this you know acres and acres of farmland, the way in which in the late 1800s, particular immigrant groups, European immigrant groups, were uh, petitioned. They were they were notices were sent, uh, saying this is you know wonderful farmland here come, and particularly one group example for, were people who, uh, who were Swedes, come, come to Iowa, come to Iowa. Now, this is in the late 1800s. Now, um, the, the, the case that they were making was you can come here, you can build up this community, you can get this farmland, and, and pretty much kind of giving this land away. Now, what else is happening in the late 1800s? Well, there are a, a humongous group, millions of, of formerly enslaved African-Americans who know a thing or two about agriculture and farmland, by the way. <laughs> um, they are not being told, come here and, and have access to this land that you will simply just have. And that's just one little snapshot. There are multiple narratives of the American story in which land is literally given away 
to different groups of people, which, which we know is going to have a significant impact on their ability to grow wealth and to distribute that wealth from gener one generation to the next. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Edmondson. I, I know it's beyond the scope of today's conversation to explain why structural explanations are more correct than non-structural explanations for racial disparities. However, I, I do want to say I was impressed by the persistence of that misunderstanding from, for example, you know, Divided by Faith uh, in 2000 to your book, which was written in 2021, 2022, that the, that same misunderstanding persists among white Christians. And, you know, even in the work of, of Robert Jones that I read that I think was written in, you know, 2014, 2016, that's a consistent theme uh, among folks who, who are like me, white Christian people who identify that way. Um, but I think it's important for, for us to, to acknowledge that misunderstanding if, we, we have any hope of contributing positively to racial justice, to racial equity. So I really appreciate you all shining a light on that. Well, and, and so it, it's not that, so white Christians have been given that narrative. They've been given that narrative so early in their development and it's so, uh, it, it, it's so much in kind of the ethos and in the, in the fog of their socialization that they may not even be able to individually pinpoint like, where did I first get that from? That's my original idea. It's not like, it's a, it's a well-propagandized idea. And so to actually see, to actually um, not land in that place, someone would have to be actively resisting kind of the, what's, what's in the water. Um, within kind of dominant white evangelicalism to have a different perspective. So um, I just at least I at least wanted to throw that that out there to say that it it they people have this perspective because they're socialized into this perspective, whether they know it or not. And this is why education, implicit like you know, and explicit education, formal and informal education, is so critically important, uh, random example, you think about a group like the Daughters of the Confederacy, right? So this group of women who are uh, charged to uphold the memory of, of Confederate soldiers who have given their life during the Civil War, right? So they're, these, are, these are fathers and grandfathers and husbands and et cetera, right? And so this appears from the Confederate lens as a noble endeavor. And, the, and they take that charge all the way into today, like there are chapters today. <laughs> and, and one of the main con educational contributions, and I'm doing air quotes, are, are that many of the statues that we see, right, in, in honor, in legacy, in memory of Confederate soldiers are, were fundraised and put in place by the Daughters of the Confederacy, who kind of had that charge of socialization, education, I would say propaganda, right? And another thing that they did that we don't talk a lot about is that they significantly informed the historical education of not just children in the South, but textbook development throughout the United States of America. And if I say these things out loud, Lil, you'll be like, I've heard this before. Some of the talking points that they that they um, emphasized were things like, well, slavery was not that bad. Slaves were treated like family members. You wonder why there's so many people who say that. And you're like, where in the world? Like, that's wild. Well, it was one of the, the narratives, one of the talking points, one of the themes that were strategically placed within, to, within textbooks, right? 
So that was that was a big one. The other one, you'll hear this all the time. The Civil War was not about slavery. <laughs> it was not about right. And you you're hit, you're like, what in the world? Like we can read Confederate uh, generals, it, we can read like their the primary sources in their own words, and they will say this. And yet it appears that that talking point is much stronger and louder than even the words of Confederate generals themselves. And that speaks to the power of formal and informal education and the ways in which people have been socialized and propagandized throughout generations. So Dr. Emerson, let's, let's transition a little bit um, to, to folks who are willing to say that racism is a structural problem. Uh, perhaps they've been educated, they've, they've read, they understand, okay, this is a structural issue. Um, but there are some people who are willing to say that racism is a structural problem, but are unwilling to do anything about it. So can you comment on the subtitle of the book, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, and share an example, perhaps from your interviews, of people who have moved past talk? Right. So, so I think that for many people who, who have, have been doing their reading, who have been who have been examining what is happening out here with a, with a different lens, there is a sense of frustration of, okay, I'm, I'm tired of talking about it. Like, what are we going to do? The, pe the people who, who do believe that uh, this is, this is a, a, st a structural issue, right? Um, that, now, by the way, in saying that it's a structural issue does not mean that it's not also a moral issue. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not an, um, kind of a one-on-one, a -on -one, kind of a personal racism prejudice issue. All of that, all that's true. Uh, but the reason why we see it operating autopilot, like just, just, you know, just cranking itself out over and over again is because it's very much structural. It's embedded in our practices, policies, laws, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's what we're getting at when we're talking about something being structural. So our hope was to move past talk, just talking about the issues, but, but thinking creatively with, uh, and it's, it's obviously the book is written from a Christian framework, but thinking about having, applying God-given wisdom and humility to uh, rolling back some of these structural dynamics. So first we have to see it for what it is <laughs> and then think about what are concrete ways to respond to the injustice of the structural, uh, the structural uh, design is, is continuing to perpetuate in terms of racial injustice. So for example, when we talk to people who, um, who have spent time on a smaller scale, not necessarily a, a societal scale, but on a smaller scale, thinking about the organizations that they're a part of. So um, if, if you think about you know, uh, both Duke and, and Greg, Duquan uh, du and, and Greg uh, Tom, Thomas Thompson, um, his their book on reparation. So you have an example of people who are looking through the, that topic specifically from a church standpoint and primarily through the denominational affiliations that they have close proximity to. But nevertheless, that is an attempt to do kind of a, a, a microstructural analysis of what does it mean for this denomination, this theological tradition to reckon with its policies and practices. Right. And, and to really consider how do we name those things and make clear uh, methods of addressing them, of rolling them back. So where there has been exclusion, where there has been a lack of access, where there, um, yeah, where there was uh, harm done to people 
through uh, theological uh, documents that were written by esteemed and elevated theologians from the tradition. How do you repair the harm that has been done? So, and when we have a conversation about reparation, we're also having a conversation about restorative justice. And reparation is, is not only economic, and that's really important because <laughs> slavery and, and racial injustice is a, has a lot to do with money um, and power, um, but, but it is not only e economic, There's, there are also other restorative justice expressions that happen, for example, which include acknowledging um, that an esteemed or beloved theologian was wrong <laughs> and, um, and that they use their words and, and position within the church, their spiritual influence to actually do spiritual abuse through uh, endorsing the subjugation of African-American people, for example. That is an expression of restorative justice, simply to name it and then to, to creatively consider, to use kind of holy imagination, what would it look like to repair this in the way that we move forward? That's good. And I, I appreciate you alluding to Duke and Greg, um, their work that has, has very much influenced me and, um, you interviewed Duke, I think, before they wrote the book on mm -hmm. the Truth Table podcast um, about church-based reparations. You also interviewed uh, Dr. Sandy Darity, uh, Dr. William mm -hmm. Sandy Darity, uh, mm -hmm. about state-based reparations. And he subsequently has written a book with uh, Kirsten Mullen, I believe, From Pure to Equality. And so I wanted, Dr. Edmondson, as somebody who has considered both church and state-based reparations to, to help us, those of us, um, well, well, first, let's, let's ask a general question. Like, when you recorded the Reparations Now series um, and interviewed uh, both Duke and uh, Sandy Darity, what did you learn? What would be some general findings that you think are important for people to know uh, from your interviews with those two individuals or just your consider consideration of reparations generally? Yeah, so from our conversation with Duke, and this is true, this he, he had, um, I think he had just started really wrestling with that idea in a, in a public sense. I'm not sure how long it had been on his mind and heart, but publicly speaking about it. And um, I think from our conversation with him at that point, it was just really helpful to be reminded um, that the church is not powerless. I think there are times when we, uh, we, we see things historically or presently in the church and people can just function like, well, well, let's just, you know, let's just move on or let's not deal with it. And one of the things I often say is that there is enough grace for us to tell the truth. And talking about and talking about the historical legacy of, of, of racism and, and domination that we see propped up by you know, kind of these powerhouse theological influencers, <laughs> historically and presently, um, we are reminded that the church not only has the power, but the responsibility to say and to do something about injustice, particularly when it finds itself as uh, as, as the primary endorsers or complicit through silence. And so I think Duke's work 
help to remind us of that. And I think some people can look at that and they can feel a sense of despair, or you can also feel a sense of empowerment, um, that, that there is something that can be done about this. And we are called to do justice. It's a, it's a verb, it's an action, it's active. Um, and there's something that we can do in response, even if we cannot, you know, wipe every tear. That's that's ultimately God's work. But we can still engage these things in thoughtful ways um, as a part of a, a part of Christian identity and Christian calling and, and community together. And then obviously the work with um, Dr. Darity, you know, what I found interesting about his work is that he's, you know, he had spent some time saying how as an economist, you know, he, I think he kind of scoffed at the idea of uh, people who were activists kind of raising reparation as, as something that was worth fighting for and advocating for. I think he just looked at it like, well, this is, you know, this is kind of a kind of a fluffy or an irrational um, kind of activist movement and did not necessarily take it seriously enough to dig through it from his economics expertise. And when he did that, he began to reckon with, well, this is actually not absurd. <laughs> this is actually, this is actually, this actually can be done. And there are actually things that um, there are a number of promissory notes, so to speak, that have been made to different groups and uh, throughout the history of America that have been reneged or forfeited, or even worse yet, have gone to the groups associated with the subjugation and oppression, right? So you think about uh, you know, post-emancipation proclamation and kind of this idea of the 40 acres and the mule for recently emancipated people of African descent in America. And yet they did not receive this. In some cases, they received land and had it taken back, had the land taken and given back to former slaveholders. And in some cases, the government uh, offered reparation for people who had held slaves. That is, I mean, like that is so morally egregious. It's so morally egregious, but yet that is a part of the American narrative. It's part of our story, right? And we, again, there's enough grace to tell the truth and to reckon with it. And from, I think, Dr. Darity's standpoint, he is looking at what are the promises that were made and what would it mean to fulfill those promises, to make right on those promises, right? Um, what is due to these now descendants of the transatlantic slave trade that are in the United States, for example? Yeah, thank you for that that summary, those comments on uh, both of those individuals, their contributions to the reparations conversation. Um, I know uh, Dr. Derry's book, From Here to Equality, I'm rereading currently uh, and certainly recommend it to folks. Um, one thing that he mentioned in that book is that some folks are asking whether we should support reparations. Others are asking how. And, and so... I, I count myself among that group, not asking whether, but, but asking how. So a, a question for you, Dr. Edmondson, uh, from your perspective, uh, should we support, um, let's call them smaller expressions of reparations in a more local context, such as described by Quan and Thompson, um, bigger expressions of reparations in a national context, as described by Darity and Mullen, who advocate strongly for the federal government to be primarily responsible for, for reparations from an economic perspective? Uh, or, or is there a way or ways, wise ways, uh, to support both? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I am inclined to say that we, 
<laughs> that we employ every expression of of right making <laughs> of, of righteousness <laughs> that we can think of right um and recognizing that some of the acts are are largely symbolic and cathartic more so than than what we would want to get to which is economically restorative so but but i would say all of those things are incredibly important because we're not just we're not just dealing with an economic wound, although that is true. Um, we're also dealing with a kind of a soul and a and a psychological wounding because of the racial trauma of having uh, generations of people robbed and then gaslit in many ways, right? Based on those non-structural explanations of why there is economic disparity between different groups, different racialized groups in our country, for example. So the, the wound is, 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 it certainly includes um, uh, kind of being left out of kind of the economic uh, formula of America, right? But also it includes what it means to have this kind of gaslighting take place of, well, that's because, you know, you don't value marriage. Or that's because you don't work as hard. Or that's because you know fill in the blank. Or that's that rap music or whatever it might be, right? And and that actually that also has to be dealt with. That wounding also has to be dealt with as well. So I, I think uh, to your question of whether it is uh, federally uh, uh, federally supported and distributed, yes, amen. <laughs> and on a local and familial level. I think that is also incredibly important uh, to do and to pursue. And here's the thing, uh, the debt, the moral debt of towards indigenous people, the moral debt uh, towards those who, um, when I think about people who were stripped from the coast of West Africa, who, um, and the people who were left there to pick up the pieces, the now minority tribes of West African nations, right, who had to kind of keep living uh, while their fathers, disproportionately male uh, people were, were taken, right, had to kind of keep living their lives. And that damage is, that psychologically, that damage is so huge. <laughs> that is that is painful, that trauma, the way it shapes generations, the way that would get uh, passed down, the, the impact that it would have on um uh, 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 trauma in the brain. We can we can look at the studies that we've seen, for example, of Holocaust survivors, and even look at generation or two generations out, and look at the way that brain development for future generations was impacted by the trauma of the Holocaust. Well, we can certainly look at what does that mean for Indigenous people of African descent in the United States, for example, right? Um, so there's not a price for that. Oftentimes when people are kind of anti-reparation, they're just kind of like, well, it's not fair. My people didn't have anything when they came over here and et cetera. But they didn't start at negative. So even so, so I I don't I I don't begrudge people like the the, narr the narrative of like my ancestors didn't have anything. They came over from fill in the blank. They came over from Poland. They came over from Italy. They didn't have anything. And I would say I believe that story. And and God bless them for their uh, perseverance, et cetera, all those things. I mean, I don't have to knock that or minimize that in any way. But I would say that there are some people who not only didn't have anything, they started at a negative. <laughs> they, they 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 started at a negative and that the system itself was built on keeping them at a negative as they as they built the infrastructure, for example, or as they, as they physically built the White House, for example. Um, and I think that is a that's a unique type of um, type of wound. And so I think we need all hands on deck federally, locally, familially, in order to respond in uh, in, in ethical and economic ways. 
to that level of injury. He'll make right all things. Yeah, thank you for that answer, Dr. Edmondson. Um, so one last question for you, and then we'll, we'll conclude. Um, I attended a conference that you spoke at um, last year in 2021, uh, and you spoke on, um, I think, the topic of clarity um, and the importance of, of speaking the truth. Uh, generally, but specifically in the context of the church. And I've heard you say more than once in our interview today, there's enough grace to tell the truth. And so I think it's my final question. What, what would be your, I don't know, your charge, your admonition um, relative to truth telling generally um, and in the church specifically? Yeah. Um, when, we, when we refuse to tell the truth, we lose uh, credibility. We lose credibility about everything you can imagine, right? And so to be unable to read the room, the, the historical room, we shouldn't be surprised that present generations and younger generations have lost respect for people who cannot tell the truth about some pretty obvious <laughs> things, right? Um, and it is, it's just important that we honor people. people. People have intrinsic dignity within their own humanity, but it's important that we, we live in a way that acknowledges that, and that's by telling the truth about their experiences. So my background um, in psychology is in trauma therapy. So I spent a number of years working with people, children and uh, ch child survivors of all kinds of forms of abuse, of working with um, soldiers at the, the Nashville VA. And one of the things that we know about trauma, and, and, and many of us and all of us have experienced different forms of trauma, but one of the things that causes trauma to, to the negative effects of it, to cling, to stick, to persist, is the denial of the trauma itself. And that's on an individual level, but this can also happen in a communal and social level as well. There are also cultural and communal traumas. And when you think about the narrative of the United States, this kind of uh, the mythologies that undergird the story of the United States, almost like it's, you know, a land made of gold. Right? There's, there's a lot of mythology around the way that different groups talk about the United States. It talks about it in a way that is directly cutting to people who were who were a part of that uh, kind of that undertow, who, who have, who've had that mythology built right on their bloody backs. And, um, and it, it further embeds the hurt, the trauma, the pain. So not only does it impact that group, right, you think about Indigenous people or people of African descent, but I would make the case that the, that the participation in the trauma, whether one was willing or unwilling, because you got to kind of sign on to the narrative, right, or you're going to get in trouble. And we see this throughout history, that when there have been white Americans who are like, okay, I'm going to tell the truth about this. They're going to catch it. They're going to get in trouble, okay? <laughs> because the mythology, it needs compliance. The mythology needs, um, it, it needs white people to say like, yeah, yeah, this it, it's fine. Everything's okay. Look the other way. <laughs> and when white people don't do that, th they are going to experience a, a lot of frustration. In worst cases, historically, they themselves may be in harm's way. Uh, we, we see that from the historical record. But nevertheless, we know that telling the truth fully dignifies people's experiences. And if we don't tell the truth, the lies will begin to misshape us. 
It further embeds the trauma that is experienced by indigenous and people of color, for example, but it also, it also distorts white Americans. It also distorts white Americans. And so there is something, um, there's something that happens when we get used to the stench of something. And you know, if there's some, if something's cooking in your house and it has a strong smell, if you've been in there all day, you don't notice it. If someone else opens the door and come in, it, it hits them as soon as they hit the door, right? And, and in some ways we are like that as it comes, as it comes to injustice, which is why we need the, the windows to be open. We need perspective. We need, some, we need truth to come in. So we can be reminded of the real smell of injustice, for example. And I would say that there have been to some degree um, a misshaping of, 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 of white American um, empathy um, and emotional, and maybe, and I would even argue a spiritual maturity on this topic because it has been void of truth and instead has had mythology. And so until truth can walk into the room, people are going to be uh, underperforming. They're going to be immature emotionally and spiritually. Um, and that has uh, grievous consequences for the way in which we engage each other and treat our neighbors. Yes and amen. I agree. Um, well, Dr. Edmondson, thank you for your time today and for being a friend and a teacher to me. Uh, do you have any last words for our audience today? So what I would encourage people to do is to learn in community with other people. So when we talk about uh, histories that are painful, it makes sense that we would do things to avoid it, that we would get overwhelmed by it. And we have to actually <laughs> have the emotional and spiritual kind of strength uh, to be able to sit with these truths. We still should sit with them, but we have to build ourselves up to it. And being in community with other learners is gonna be really, really important. So I would remind people to not go it alone. The problems that we face in terms of racial injustice didn't happen overnight. Um, and they are they're complicated and they're deep rooted. And uh, we're not gonna be able to read one book and then it, we, we got it all together. No, this is, a, this is a deep journey and a deep dive. And uh, as the African proverb reminds us, if you wanna go quickly, but I don't know where you're going, you go by yourself. But if you wanna go for a long distance, you go with a community, you go with someone else. And so you need to do this work in community with others is, is the last uh, statement that I would provide to the listener. Just relax, indulging in securities Living a lie, living a die Playing with fire, playing with you with fire Living a lie, playing with fire Well, Dustin, uh, thank you for co-hosting season two with me. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, for folks who don't know you, can you share some of your story? Who are you and why are you here today? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Lo, for having me. Uh, you're a good friend, and uh, I'm excited to be able to uh, do this work alongside of you. Uh, my name is Dustin McGowan. As you have already said, I am originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Go Packers. Um, and uh, moved to Fayetteville, Northwest Arkansas area in 2017 uh, by way of Rockford, Illinois, in the Chicago area. Uh, I'm married uh, to my wife, Joy McGowan. Uh, she is the much better of the two of us. But, you know, I, I glory in, you know, being able to, to ride in the, 
the passenger seat of the, <laughs> the movement she's making. Uh, also, we have three kids, uh, Micah, uh, Malachi, and Mercy, who's uh, just turning one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a pastor and uh, I serve at a church here called Genesis Church. And um, I saw committed to the work of, you know, diversity and, you know, and racial justice and uh, have been doing work in, in that area for a number of years. Um, and, you know, that's really why I'm here. Man. I'm committed to the to the to the gospel holistically. But mm-hmm. in addition to that, I'm committed to um, racial justice. Um, restorative justice and it's you know in the, the fullest manifestation that that can be in in our world and so anything that is moving towards that moving the needle in that direction you know I'm behind it and so want to be a part of those conversations want to be a part of the work that's pushing that want to be a part of speaking into uh, those who are resisting that movement mm-hmm. um, so that we can um, in due time, you know, bring about the fruit that needs to come. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm excited for, you know, what's happening um, right now and uh, how hopefully that creates um, some inertia moving um, towards some, some bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that introduction, Dustin. Um, yeah, you are and have been a, a dear friend to me, and I've appreciated your voice in my life. Uh, privately and, and some of the opportunities we've had to speak together publicly. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to dialogue with you on the podcast and then uh, for folks in our community to uh, hear your voice because uh, I think it, it is an important one uh, in my life and in our community. So um, what we'll do on the podcast this season, we'll, we'll have an interview with uh, a national leader, and then you and I will talk about what we heard uh, from that individual and what we hope for our community. So today, we'll spend a few minutes discussing what we heard from Dr. Edmondson and what we hope for Northwest Arkansas generally and the church in Northwest Arkansas specifically. So uh, I'll go first, and then I'll ask you, Dustin, what you heard and and what you hope. Mm -hmm. Um, So the main thing that I heard from Dr. Edmondson is that white Christians have misunderstood the problem of racism and that we need to tell the truth about this. Uh, She said more than once that there's enough grace to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And in the book, Faithful Anti-Racism, Dr. Edmondson explores how Americans explain racial inequality. And she finds that among black, white, Christian, and other than Christian people, lamentably, white Christians, people like me, are the most likely to blame black people and the least likely to blame racist systems for racial inequality. The the data is very clear about this, and this alarms me for at least three reasons. Uh, One, what we believe isn't true. Two, we, we behave as if black people are the problem, and three, we behave as if white people are the solution. Now, Dustin, in my experience, if you ask white Christians in Northwest Arkansas uh, why the average black household in Washington County has about 50% of the income of the average white household, uh, if folks know that, we may say that we blame racist systems, but often what we're doing is inconsistent with what we're saying. So many 
white Christians in Northwest Arkansas are doing so-called racial reconciliation, but, but few are doing racial justice. And in, in my opinion, at its best, racial reconciliation is a, a small part of the solution because it doesn't try to change racist systems. Um, and at its worst, racial reconciliation is a big part of the problem because it tries to change black people making them more like white people. And, and so the main thing that I hope for the church in Northwest Arkansas is that we can confess that we've really misunderstood, many of us, the problem of racism here in Northwest Arkansas and that we can repent, that we can behave as if we believe racist systems, not black people, are the problem. So Dustin, what about you? What did, what did you hear? What do you hope? Yeah, I think uh, I really. First of all, I really enjoyed listening to uh, Dr. Edmondson uh, uh, talk and the conversation that you all had in your interview. Uh, th- there were really two big takeaways that I had from the conversation, and the first one was in in line with what you just communicated, which is the the inability or the refusal to see racism as systemic and structural structural in nature. Mm-hmm. And my issue with that is that uh, those who hold that position um, hold that at the same time as holding to uh, theological frameworks that are incredibly structural and systemic in nature and to a God who is very... Uh, systemic in the way in which he orders and structures society. Mm. And uh, and even looking at the belief system that they hold, God would communicate that uh, over-privatization of the faith is one of the primary issues with it, when it has become less communal, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right, and more individualistic, has driven people away from God and away from community um, to do harm to one another, right? That is where we find the justifications for evil, right? In myself, I can justify doing something to you if I benefit from it or if my family benefits from it, right? When we move towards privatization and a, a, a away from systemic and structural good for the all of society, what we create are silos of individual evil where everybody is selfish and is inward driven versus outwardly driven, right? If you, if you look at the, the, the theological systems that have been created historically, they, they press against those ideas. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is, it is ironic in, in, in my view that people would hold to positions that would, you know, that would argue this basic premise that the world is broken and fallen. Right. And that has affected everything. Mm-hmm. Right. They would say they will argue that sin has touched and affected, has corroded and has caused decay and everything that exists. Right. And so there's this broad reach. Right. Reality of what is broken. Right. But when we get to this particular issue about racial evil, racial injustice, Right. This kind of systemic structural reality of what sin and brokenness is. Right. Somehow stops. Mm -hmm. 
Like we kind of have this idea that the world is broken, but somehow our systems are uh, good enough <laughs> to resist the evil and brokenness of the world, which doesn't make any sense. And it, it, it's not, you know, cohesive at all. And so, and so the reality of that is that people hold those positions is because they, you know, ultimately, if I'm able to privatize something, right, if I can convince myself that I'm not doing wrong, I can now pass the buck to other people to just deal with themselves, mm -hmm. right? Or if I see, right, people who have, who have been harmed or people who are in various situations, and I can say, hey, I'm here because, you know, of what I've done, you know, even though if that's not true, none of us arrive where we are in the vacuum. We all are <laughs> benefit from forces outside of us that help move us to where we are, uh, good or bad. Uh, but we find ways to exempt ourselves from caring mm -hmm. and from seeing uh, one another and what the forces that we create, that we perpetuate, that exist around us are doing to one another. And so what we want to be able to do is be able to justify ourselves as being morally excused from having any reason to move or act, especially when those movements or actions in the long term can take uh, opportunities, uh, benefits, resources, right, privileges away from me and my family, those whom I love. Uh, the second thing uh, it was when she the, the conversation ended on, and uh, we talk and we I talk about this a lot, and so I was really you know glad that she brought it up, and uh, which is the sense of um, white people not understanding how uh, racism has negatively affected them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I, I normally talk about this. I talk about the w, double de, uh, dehumanization of white supremacy. Yes. Right? And uh, one of the things that I, 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 I believe strongly is that white people haven't moved to deconstruct, you know, racism, white supremacy, because, one, they haven't understood primarily how it has harmed and defaced them as well. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I remember, you know, King talking about lynchings and talks about, you know, that there's two uh, uh, dehumanizing things happening at the same time when a lynching occurs, right? There is the initial, right, the one that is the most obvious of the, the black body who has been uh, dehumanized, whose life is being take, taken and made a spectacle in doing such, Right. That is the obvious, clear dehumanization. But there is the second level of that, which is the person who is watching that as a spectacle. Right. Who is being entertained by that, who that uh, picture is giving joy and happiness to. Right. Who has darkened themselves. And I and, you know, you know, kind of my, a little bit of my inner preacher is, is coming out as I think about this. Come on. Right. Because I think. I think about what happens in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. Mm. And as the consequence, God tells Cain that he will bear a mark mm -hmm. and that though when people see him, they will want to kill him. 
right? And God says, no, whoever kills Cain, you know, he will suffer seven times greater punishment for doing so. And then also after, you know, you know, the ark uh, and God, you know, gives the Noahic covenant that, you know, which, you know, ends in God, the, the rainbow. God says this. Uh, he, he basically says, you know, by anyone who kills a man, by man shall his life be taken, right? And that is not this apologetic that proves, you know, that we should be able to have uh, uh, the death penalty or just war theory or any of that. What, what God is actually doing is warning people of the consequences of what happens when you do not value human life, mm. Right. And so what happens in our world when 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 somebody dies, when we kill a person that if you are known as a murderer, you automatically have stained your own humanity in the eyes of other human beings. Right. As we watch people, we see the more evil that they do, the less human they feel to us, Mm -hmm. the less value we end up treating, you know, giving their own their life. Right. Which is why when we watch, you know, action films and all these kinds of things, why we do not right get sad at the death of the villain. Mm-hmm. Right. Because in my in our eyes, their life has lost value. Right. And God is not giving us permission. That's exactly what he's saying. And like we, we have not been given permission to lower the value of human life. And so one of the, the problems that we have when we look at this issue of w, dehumanization is that people have failed to see how their violation of the image of God and others, our human value, intrinsic worth, has in turn also lowered their own sense of value of their own human lives. Mm-hmm. Right? It is, a, it is a natural consequence that if I dehumanize you, I dehumanize myself. Right? All isms are systems of dehumanization and uh and we we rarely think about that the reflective harm that is done when we violate the human worth and dignity of other people and so like her bringing that up is essential because i think that's one of the things that people miss is one how they have robbed been have robbed themselves of dignity Right. And so when we, we look at that. Right. When people begin to behave, we see that you became, you 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 adopt this villainous and monstrous type of identity and it, that it perpetuates. And so I think reclaiming some of that uh, for people to be able to, to question, like, what is happening in me? Right. That is allowing me to be in this position, I think, is is vital. Um uh, for moving the needle for people to understand the broad effects of white supremacy. White supremacy ruins everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. it's, it's important for us to see that. And I think sometimes we, we what, what we have seen is the inability of uh, white people to be able to understand that the system that you have created to oppress and marginalize has violated you too. That's good, Dustin. That's good. What do you hope? Uh, I think in line with that, I, I, I hope that um, there's this 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 broad movement, which I think is uh, seems seemingly impossible to get to, 
But I think it is necessary if we are to gain any real ground, and that is for people to be able to see that, as Dr. King argues, that, you know, either we will thrive or flourish together as brothers or we will perish as fools, right? That human thriving is married together, mm-hmm. right? There is no human thriving in this, uh, this polarization that exists and this division that exists, right? And my, my oppression of those who are weak and vulnerable, marginalized, may seemingly grant me benefits and privileges, right? But in the long-term trajectory of human, right, <laughs> humanity, it is a major negative because we do not move forward in that. And so, and it it has to be something that is seen because we look at our social political landscape, right? We, We see how we are becoming less and less human in our engagement with one another, right? That our, our postures are becoming more and more violent. Right. I read an article some years ago that said that, you know, where it made the argument that, um, uh, you know, conservatives and progressives are both over 50 percent believe that the world would be better off if the other group did not exist. Mm. Right. That's not a good place for us to be in. And so my hope is that 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 we find that the, the way towards justice is a unified front. That's why, like. You know, people whom are often overlooked in in the history of civil rights, like Fred Hampton, right, from the Black Panthers, who who had the Rainbow Coalition, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. who understood this idea that that racial justice is only possible if we can bring everybody to the table to push for it. It is not possible if we are siloed out pushing away from the center in all these different directions. We don't get anywhere. And so, and that's why I think it is very important for, you know, for the compelling narrative to be structured so that we can move towards restorative justice, so that we can move towards this and this holistic vision that is, that is necessary to get there. Um, but there's so much resistance. And I think a part of the resistance is, is because, um, so much of the conversation is white-centered, mm. right, of compelling white people to care about something. And I think there's also this secondary movement that really needs to happen of the, the galvanizing the, of, of all people of colors to move in one general direction together because I think sometimes even amongst minorities in our country we don't, you know, always agree that, you know, we are moving in this direction. (laughs) And it is in your own personal benefit to get in step with what is happening, Mm -hmm. right? Versus oftentimes what we see, you know, we we stop at the station of 
uh, of the apologetic of, hey, please care about us and get on the train and move in this direction, which, as we have known from experience, moves the train incredibly so, if at all. Yeah, that's good. Well, Dustin, we could talk for hours and hours, um, but let's stop there for this month. Uh, next month, we'll be talking to Dr. Soon Chan Ra, so I look forward to that Dr. discussion Soon with Chan you, Ra. Dustin. Yeah. I'm excited about that, too. All right. That's great. Thank you. It's permanence, removal of it's suicide. At this point, it's obvious. Close your browser. And young war zone, lose you in Fallujah. I hope you find shelter for them goons come bruise And when the homies gain thrones, boy, it ain't no game, bro. I shouldn't know how a body goes limp when it hangs, bro. But go and close your browser. The luxury of the option of participation is great, right? Man, this is a great life. Man, we did something right. I've struggled with hugging my daughters, knowing homies who can't no more. And enjoying the time I got while living in the tension of the world's imperfection. Locking in on the sovereign reign of the king of all kings. Trusting he'll make right all things.